Songwriter, the podcast of stories and answer songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today, a brand new song from Anna Klein of the band Swift Silver. But first, the story of one of the most influential artists of the 20th century. My name is Mark Harris, and I am a journalist and a cultural historian slash biographer. I've written a few books, and my latest is called Mike Nichols, A Life, which is a biography of the film and stage director and sometime performer, Mike Nichols. He did things like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate, and Working Girl, and Silkwood, and Postcards from the Edge, and Angels in America, and Closer, and Charlie Wilson's War, and The Odd Couple, and Spamalot, and The Real Thing on Stage. He took these very bright, snappy comedies by Neil Simon, things like Barefoot in the Park, and The Odd Couple, and Plaza Suite, and The Prisoner of Second Avenue, and connected them to an acting style and a performance style that was grounded in incredibly closely observed little realistic details. He found ways between the lines, in the lines, above and below the lines of dialogue for actors to behave in ways that uh, you could recognize from your own life. That was something that people who had been used to a whole different, much brighter, shallower, more presentational style of stage comedy in the 1950s had never seen before. That's something that now exists in the DNA of a lot of theater directors who may not even know where they got it from. There was this style of theater that preceded Mike where being in a comedy play meant that you sort of stood toward the front of the stage and maybe you were bickering or bantering with uh, the other main character, but you were kind of half delivering your lines to him or her and half out to the audience. That's one thing that Mike Nichols really brought to these comedies that even if they don't seem particularly realistic on the page, made them seem more intimate and personal and human scale and realistic uh, when you were actually watching them. Interestingly, this transition had a lot to do with technology. Just as microphone technology allowed crooners like Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra to steal the spotlight from belters like Al Jolson and Sister Rosetta Tharp, the parameters for artistic possibility in theater were expanding too. You could mic performers without having the sound become tinny or blaring or 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 sort of overtly artificial that changes everything that changes blocking on stage that changes directing and certainly it changes acting because what if you don't have to bellow what if you can talk in in something that more approximates normal human speech it just completely changes the definition of of what theater can be, and I think it probably even affects how you might 
write a conversation? Is it easier or harder that way to do overlapping dialogue, for instance? But it wasn't as a director that Mike Nichols first became famous, but instead as a performer in his work with Elaine May. Mike and Elaine both often said that they became famous overnight, that they went from being this rising New York club act, but but still the kind of club act that would open for a bigger act in a midtown cabaret or a downtown jazz club, to being headliners who would tour nationally and play venues of 1,500 seats rather than 150 seats. And it all came down to apparently one appearance on one TV show. And because we lived in a world back in 1958 when this happened of only three networks, tens of millions of people saw that one appearance and it was covered over the next couple of days in the New York Times, in Time, in Newsweek, in Life magazine. You really could become famous all at once in a way that's unimaginable now where everything is like so niche and so siloed you can become internet famous or you can become reality tv famous but can you become nationally famous like nichols and may did almost in a blink i think it's really really difficult when you look at their rise and say it's meteoric uh or it happened overnight it's really not an exaggeration um it happened very very fast So much of the comedy that Mike and Elaine did was about pain. Their comedy was mostly in the form of sketches that lasted anywhere from two minutes to maybe 15 minutes. Often the situation that the sketches started with was very simple, not outlandish. Two teenagers are in the front seat of a car and he wants to go all the way and she doesn't. Uh, a guy is down to his last dime and uh, is desperately trying to convince a series of telephone operators to put his call through. Like pretty ordinary situations, but in those situations, for Mike especially, he was often very, very in touch with pain. He, he, he loved playing impatient people, desperate people, needy people, anxious people, frustrated people. That was sort of his, his wheelhouse. Mike specialized in playing somebody who wants something and can't get it and can't figure out how to get it. I think it also connects to empathy. You know, he, he understood what it was like to be frustrated, what it was like to want something and not be able to get it. Even when he becomes much more successful and he's up to the point where he's casting The Graduate, he sees Robert Redford for the main part, who desperately wants it, and says, I'm really sorry, I can't cast you. You, you don't know what it's like to strike out with a woman. You don't know what it's like to want a woman and not get her. One of the issues that Mark explores in the book, and that may relate to Mike Nichols's lifelong fascination with pain and empathy, is the curious fact that he did not have any hair. 
Nichols once said, it takes me three hours to become Mike Nichols every day. What he was talking about was literally the complexity of, of gluing on a wig and putting it in the right position and of gluing on eyebrows every day. But also, I think what he was referring to was the psychological effort of creating a self. I mean, that's something that uh, I think many of us can relate to, that when we're talking to other people or when we're going out in the world or when we go to our offices or, or to a party or something, we're not precisely the same person that we are when we're sitting on our couches. But imagine if, if that was literally true, that you you weren't recognizable to yourself until you put your face on, you know, and and whatever whatever armor and whatever persona and whatever new personality traits you decided belonged with that. It was something that he was vulnerable about and that he could also be hurt by. And that, I think, has to go back all the way to his childhood. The official story about this is that Mike's permanent hair loss was caused by a bad reaction to a vaccine. I don't know 100% that that's true. That was what Mike was told by his father, who was a doctor. But it resulted in this life where this very young boy had to cope with it before he had available to him all of the the strategies that he used as an adult. And also, I, I should say, before he was even allowed to wear a hairpiece, because in the screwed up psychology of the 1940s, Mike's parents did not allow him to wear a wig. His father, in particular, believed in the idea that the best thing for him would be to just get used to it, not to hide it, but just to, to live with it as an affliction. It wasn't until Mike's father died, which was when Mike was uh, 12 or 13, that he was allowed to uh, get a hairpiece for the first time. Mike's journey to America was was a rough one. He was born in Berlin. His father was a Russian Jew. His mother was a German Jew. And, and you know, by 1938 or so, it became clear that uh, they were not going to have any kind of life that they could live, maybe even literally, if they stayed in Germany. Mike's father, for one thing, who was a physician, was not going to be able to practice. So... The, the plan that was hatched is that Mike's father would leave for New York by boat and take some time to set up a medical practice, to get licensed, to find a place for them to live. And then as soon as that was set up several months later, Mike and his little brother, Robert, and their mother would follow. But their mother got sick uh, soon after that. She developed deep vein thrombosis, and they didn't know how to treat it. And so she really became an invalid for a while and was hospitalized, apparently, for, for months on end. And as time started pressing and, it you know, Hitler kept rising and it was 1939, it became very urgent to get the boys out of Germany. Seven-year-old Mike Nichols was put on a boat with his four-year-old brother, 
and sent alone to America. The only two sentences of English he spoke were, I do not speak English and please do not kiss me. He was you know, a, a fairly kind of adorable sight to adults. And I think if you saw a, a little bald seven-year-old boy alone on a boat holding the hand of his uh, four-year-old brother, you know, as an adult, your, your first instinct would probably be to go over and give him a hug and a kiss. And um, that wasn't what he wanted. It took him a really long time, decades, until he got into adulthood and even into middle age to to really fully absorb um, the fact that he survived something. That, that you know, the, the, the difference between making that six-day uh, journey and not making it was uh, the difference between life and death. And now, the song written in response. Well, my name is Anna Klein. Before the pandemic, I was a pretty busy musician and songwriter. You know, we took the time during the pandemic to, to put out a new album, which was great. And we thought, maybe everything will clear up in 2021. And it really, in some ways it did, and in some ways it didn't. My partner, John, and I have been together for 10 years, and we started um, in a band called Grits and Soul. We really wanted to change directions musically, like with our sound and with our songs, too. So that's why we changed the name to Swift Silver, which is actually from an old, old Kentucky Appalachian legend about this man named John Swift. He says that he found a silver mine in the Red River Gorge area, which is about 45 minutes away from us, and supposedly left, you know, kind of a trail of, of things where you could find it, but it's never been found. His early life was what really spoke to me. He was in middle school and got to see um, a young Marlon Brando in a streetcar named Desire. And he and his friend just sat there the whole time just with the weight of it and they never spoke a word. I guess I was thinking about, you know, I've got a line, we'll see the world through new eyes. Because there are so many things that just completely, like, in, in the span of a second will change the way you see the world. I actually come from a long line of singers. My grandmother was a singer and then my great-grandfather and, and all that. My mom was a singer in the 60s in Memphis. <laughs> they called her the Joan Baez of Tennessee. She sang a lot of folk music and sang a lot in church as well. And I learned a lot from her. You know, my entire life has been filled with, with song and music. We watched a lot of old, old movies growing up, you know, like really, like from the 30s and 40s. <laughs> I was talking to her the other day and she's in the early stages of dementia, which is unsettling in a lot of ways. It's a strange disease. You can't help but see real and major at time, you know, 
cognitive decline. I mean, there are just things that she doesn't remember, short-term memory things. And now that my sister and I look back um, these past couple of years, we realize there's a lot of things that sort of make sense. I find that, you know, you let go of a lot of any kind of resentment you may have and just love them through this moment and and remember who they were and try to make them as happy as possible. Um, I actually played the song for her the other day and she loved it. And she said, well, you know, your grandmother used to call it a picture show. <laughs> Over the past few years, John and I have kind of dabbled in swing, swing music, that is. And uh, I should, should clarify that. I don't know, it kind of felt right in a way. The vintage vibe, you know, as I was reading, um, you know, reading especially about his early life, um, it just spoke to me, especially, you know, him being in New York City and then ultimately being the toast of the town there, you know, with Nichols and May and everything. I just felt like it kind of fit. In a conversation after Mark had heard the song, he shared his own history with grief. As a young man, Mark not only lost his mother, but also a beloved aunt, and in a terribly short period of time. My, well, my mother and my aunt, yeah, within six weeks of each other. And um, yeah, that's a very, um, well, you you know, it repositions all your cells, you know? You're, you're, you're you, you're the same person, but you're a different person too. You relate to the world differently. Unless you get really unlucky, you have to say goodbye to your parents at some point. And, and um, like, none of us, none of us escape this. If what, what is going on with your mother was in your mind when you were writing the song, I kind of get that because there is this wistful memory thing about the song that's really beautiful. This is Anna Klein of the band Swift Silver with her song, The Picture Show. I was standing in line at the picture show Learned a thing or two about life at a picture show Show. 
time little picture show Laid that money down like I did And that picture show I felt in such a big way What mere words could never say So again and again and again I watched that old picture show So again and again and again I watched that old picture show That was Anna Klein of Swift Silver performing Picture Show, recorded by Josh Nolan. The next episode will feature an exclusive story from Laurie Woolever about a shoot in Sri Lanka with Anthony Bourdain and a song written in response by Bourdain's longtime composer, Mike Ruffino. Songwriter is 100% independent and produced by Hook and Crook. If you want to support the work of the artist and myself on the show, please consider getting a premium subscription from Apple Podcasts or simply go to songwriterpodcast.com forward slash donate. Reviews, five-star ratings, and kind words on social media or otherwise are always appreciated too. You can always get early access to the Songwriter Podcast at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, why not check out the Paste Podcast or get it anywhere you get yours. Finally, thanks, as always, to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe. Acoustic Cafe